Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to talk about race. Now, this is a hugely important topic, and it is finally on the radar screen for so many people in ways it hasn't been for, I would argue, decades. Many people are reading books and watching movies and listening to podcasts and trying to understand matters that they really probably haven't considered much before. And these are all really important conversations. They're important conversations in our private life, and they're important conversations at at work. But the conventional wisdom is you can't talk about stuff like race at work, and I want to challenge that today. So today we're going to say, how do you talk about race? And by the way, another challenging topic, if you want, at work. And my guest is Mary Frances Winters. Mary Frances is a best-selling author and a founder and CEO of the Winters Group, which is a global diversity, inclusion, and consulting firm. She came of age during the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and she's a passionate advocate for justice and equity. She's received a bunch of awards and honors, including the Athena Award as diversity pioneer from Profiles in Diversity Journal and the Winds of Change from the Forum on Workplace Inclusion and Forbes Top 10 Diversity Trailblazers. We could go on a bit. Mary Frances is also a prolific writer, as you might imagine. The book we're going to talk about today is We Can Talk About That at Work, but she has two brand new books that are just coming out. One is called Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, as well as Inclusion Conversations, Fostering Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Differences. Mary Frances, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for being here. This is so important. It's important to me, and I think it's important to the world in general. But before I dive into how, one of my favorite questions, I want to know a little bit about what got you started in this topic. What's your mission and purpose in this work? My mission and purpose is to foster equitable conversations. I hear so much. I hear all the time leaders. CEOs, senior vice presidents, high up in organizations say, I am uncomfortable, and particularly uncomfortable talking about race. So my mission is to provide the skills, provide the history, provide the techniques to talk effectively about race in service of eliminating and eradicating racism. Okay. Um, great. An important cause without any doubt. And I, before I just ask one, I have to ask one more question about you personally. Why did you start this work? Did you always know this was your life mission or did you just sort of evolve into it and how so? Well, you know, I think I always knew it was my life's work, but I didn't know that I knew that. <laughs> that <makes any> <laughs> yes. I, um, you know, when I was five years old, I was called the N-word. I didn't know what that meant because my parents didn't use that kind of language. But the kid who said it to me said it to me in a mean way. And then when I started to 
parents told me, you know, some of what that what, what that meant. I went from being this little carefree little kid, can do anything in life, to being somebody who was cautious because somebody might be mean to me just because of how I look. So I think it was from then on that I was really uh, in tune with. And so in my high school years, I wrote for the uh, school newspaper and I wrote about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and I wrote, you know, in history about, you know, uh, some black uh, freedom uh, fighters. So I've been, always been very, you know, uh, racially conscious. And then in college, I uh, marched and um, we painted a, a, a rock, red, black, and green. And so I was an activist in college as well. And then when I got into the work world, I got thrown into, actually literally thrown into the affirmative action job. And so here I am again, you know, doing work around um, around equity and around um, fairness. Uh, and when I started my own business in 1984, I actually started as a market research firm doing research, qualitative and quantitative research, market research, what will people buy, focus groups and those kinds of things. And then clients started to ask me to do surveys on with employees. I started to do that. And they started to ask me to segment the data by race and gender and all of those variables. I started to do that. Then they started asking me to do diversity training. I'm a researcher. I'm not a trainer. And so, but I am an entrepreneur. So <laughs> I said, what's this diversity stuff about? Um, and so I got into the into doing more of that work. And so the, or the business has just morphed over the years into being, you know, a full-service diversity, equity, and inclusion firm where we still do a lot of research. So we still start with the data. And uh, we support um, organizations in developing their strategies. But I think I've always had an eye towards uh, justice and fairness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go back to your CEOs who say that they're uncomfortable talking about race. I hear the same thing. I've had people say to me, what do I read? Help me understand what I read. And I'm not an expert in this particular segment of diversity. So why do you think CEOs are uncomfortable or leaders in general uncomfortable? What are they afraid of? Well, I think that we've been taught in particular not to talk about race. I mean, I think, you know, we've been taught to just treat everybody the same, you know, don't notice race. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is that it's just um, the memory of um, racism and the hard-fought battles to get to even where we are today. And so for some, it's embarrassing. There's shame. There's guilt, uh, and it's it's just one of the, it's it's not a not a pleasant conversation. And you know we don't like to you know we don't like to be disturbed from our pleasantness. And I think if we face it, we would we would agree that we haven't made a lot of progress in reality. And then we'd have to do something about it. And doing something about it is hard. It's hard work. So it's easier just not to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I am surprised, and I am sure you're going to agree with me on this one, but I'll leave it. I'll ask the question. I am surprised by how little people understood about the day in and day out experiences of their black colleagues who are well-educated, have good jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that how many experiences have been so difficult for those black colleagues? Are you surprised, and are you seeing the same thing? I am surprised, Wanda, and I am seeing the same thing. And I, I'm like, where, you know, like kind of like, where have you been? 
And uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I was um, doing a keynote for a large virtual, of course, for a large financial services organization. And the CEO said in his introduction, he said, my chief financial officer is a black man. And he said it wasn't until, you know, a few days ago that we really sat down and talked and I had any idea um, that he was walking through life differently from me. He said, I, I didn't know. And um, there's actually a video, I'm not, so I'm not telling tales out of school on this one, Randall Stevenson, the CEO of AT&T, out there on the, on the Internet, where he says the same thing. He said, I have this very good black friend. We've, we've known each other for over 30 years. We share joys and sorrows together. We've been on vacation together. And it wasn't until he heard this black friend in a, uh, give a speech, and the speech was on video, that he said, I, I had no idea. He said, I, I just had no idea. So I, I don't know why. I, I, I think maybe it's, again, we, we hope that um, income, uh, we hope that you know, socioeconomic status, uh, erases uh, racism, uh, and, yeah. and it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, that I think was always the hope, at least in my youth and young adulthood, that as we got more of our black colleagues into educational systems and into the jobs and into the corporate market, that the rest would take care of itself. I might add that we also have the same view about women, that as we get women into the workforce and educated, that it will take care of itself, and it isn't, it isn't happening. Um, I want to go back to something you said about that we are taught to treat everyone the same. And that's, and a lot of people say that to me, you know, that's what I do. I treat everyone the same, except I think there's a problem with that. So I'd like to know your view. Is that a good philosophy? If so, why? And if not, why? Well, we're not the same. We want to treat everyone equitably. Um, I don't think that means we treat everyone the same. And you'll hear people say, well, I just treat people the way I want to be treated. Well, someone else may not want to be treated the way that, you're want, that you want to be treated. And you don't know that um, unless you know something about that individual if you develop a relationship. We talk about the golden rule, and the golden rule is, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. We also talk about the platinum rule, and the platinum rule is treat others the way they want to be treated. And so I sometimes in sessions I will ask, um, how many of you have brothers and sisters? Raise your hand. Raise your hands. How many of you lived in the same house or with the same parents? That hands. How many of you are just like your brothers and sisters? All the hands go down. So we're not the same. We have different interests. You know, we're motivated by different things. And, and so it's not about being, the, being treated the same. It's about being treated. And I use equitable, equitable instead of equally because equally would mean that you are being treated the same. So some people have seen this cartoon um, with children who are um, trying to see, three children, try, trying to see over a fence to a baseball game. And the children are different sizes, but the boxes that they've been given to stand on are all the same size. So that's treating them equally. We gave you all the same size box. Well, the tallest kid didn't need a box at all. The middle kid only needed one box, and the littlest kid needed two boxes. So that's equity. You give people what they need. Um, so that they have, you know, fair, fair access. Right. Okay. All right. Good points. Really good points. I love that image too about equitable versus equal. That's an important one. And I love your platinum rule, treat people the way they want to be treated, which means I have to know something about them, which means I have to have a relationship with them, which means I have to understand what their drivers and needs and motivations are about. And I think that's at the heart of what we want to see happen. 
So let's turn and talk to uh, about what we need leaders to do. You know, and you consult with lots and lots and lots and lots of companies. What do you tell leaders they need to do that's going to make a real, substantive, sustainable difference? Well, the first thing is probably not um, anything revolutionary because I'm sure in any leadership development program, they're told the same thing. So leaders need to first have self-awareness, right? You know, we talk about emotional intelligence and those kinds of things, which is really um, wound up in, in being, being aware. And this is a different kind of self-awareness, though. This is cultural self-awareness. You know, what did I learn growing up about people who were different from me? What exposure did I have with people who were different from me? Um, let me be honest with myself. Am I uncomfortable just being around somebody who's from a different race? Because I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to say. So I think that's the first step. The first step is really doing that self-work. And for white people, for white leaders, I would say it's acknowledging whiteness. And what do I mean by that? So the Pew does a, a survey every year, and they ask the question, to what extent is race core to your identity? 75% of black people say that race is core to their identity. 57, 58% of Latinos say that race is core to their identity. 54% of Asian Americans say that race is core to their identity. Only 15% of white people say that race is core to their identity. In many sessions that I have with, with leaders, they'll say, yeah, I, I don't even think about race. Race doesn't really matter. You know, what, what, what does race matter? Well, well, you're in the dominant group. It doesn't. It's like the fish in water, right? You don't notice what's around you until, you, you know, until the fish is out of that water, out of that um, dominant um, environment. So it's not about being ashamed. It's not about because some people say, well, you know, I, I don't want to talk about being white, you know, because of, you know, the history and whatnot. But you have to understand we live in a racialized world. And if there was no white, there would be no black. If there was no black, there would be no white. And so to have a conversation about race, both races have to acknowledge that race exists and they have to understand what it means. So what, what does it mean to be white in America? What does it mean to be a white leader in America? So you have positional power as a leader, but you also may have you know, social power um, as a leader, meaning that let's say you're in an organization that is uh, run by white men. And so uh, as a male, as a white male, you also have that, that status of, of power as well. So it's about acknowledging it. It's about acknowledging how the dominant, uh, the, the dominant culture sets the rules. The dominant culture is what's considered normal. Uh, everything else is considered, you know, by, by default is considered abnormal. So people of color spend a lot of time trying to fit in to an organization. Leaders need to understand their role, their role in, in creating those environments based on what is probably an unconscious dominant, uh, you know, d dominant uh, white framework. So that's the first thing that they need to do. Acknowledge their whiteness, do the self-reflection self work. The second thing that, um, that leaders need to do is to create an environment where, that, that create an environment that is psychologically safe, an environment where individuals on the team are going to feel that it's okay to be who I am and it's okay to share um, my feelings, my, my thoughts, even though they're different. There's a lot of consensus-driven organizations, right? And, and individuals are not even, somebody says, oh, I've got a different idea, but, you know, eight, eight of the ten people in this room want to go that way, so why would I say, you know, something else? 
So that might be the best innovative idea in the world, that, that ninth person who doesn't want to go against this, you know, this consensus um, idea. So, so leaders need to create, uh, create teams that recognize that, um, that are okay with the dissension that comes from diversity, right? I like this, yeah. you like that, the other one likes this. And that, in all of that comes, you know, comes new ideas. When we talk with, um, and we've been talking with a lot of black employees in major corporations over the last eight weeks, they say that they don't feel that sense of belonging. They don't feel that they're able to uh, share, uh, you know, other kinds of opinions because oftentimes they're one or one of a few you know, in that team or on that team. And they're saying, I, we, I'm already, I already stick out. And so I'm not going to go and, you know, buck the, uh, you know, the, the common, you know, um, approach or the common sentiment in terms of the way that we should go. But leaders should create that. They should expect that. You know, I talked to a leader a number of years ago, and he said to me, he said, I only hire people who disagree with me. He said, why would I hire people who agree with me? He said, I already have that opinion. That's why I hire people who, you know, I don't I probably wouldn't agree with because I need to have that other, um, that that other way of thinking as a part of my team. Yeah, I think a lot of people will agree with the sentiment of that leader statement. I hire people who disagree with me. I think it's extraordinarily hard to practice that day in and day out, especially when there's a sense of urgency. We got to move. We have to have a decision, and I'm kind of tired of you having the disagreeing idea. Um, with that, though, I want to come back to something you said before, um, and I really like the research that's behind this, to say how, when you're white, how little you actually notice race. It isn't a factor for you. And as you rightly said, whatever the dominant is, that is the norm. However, that's defined in your world, in your culture, in your community, in your organization. You talked about positional power, and you talked about social power, and I want to emphasize a particular thing in there that I see regularly, which is relational power, influence power. Um, who I talk to, who I'm comfortable with, who I know, who can get my ear, who I trust, has a lot of power in the organization. And if I spend my time with people who think like I think or who have experiences in common to my experiences, then I'm compounding how much people can influence me who are of the dominant style. And I don't think we stop to think about the ways in which we make it difficult for people to build the relationships, to build the comfort, to build the trust when they come from a non-dominant style non-race, even for that matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, let's face it, um, you know, people are going to gravitate to people who are, who are like them. And it may even be unconscious. I mean, so somebody, you know, like a, let's take a white male leader um, who is um, mentoring, you know, a young, a young white guy. He might be thinking, oh, he, he reminds me of myself, you know, when I was coming through, right? Or he reminds me of my son or, you know, um, Something, something along those lines. With that, that relation you're t- talking about, yep. that relational power, right? And so, who do you listen to? And that may be unconscious as well. So you might listen more to somebody who 
looks like you, if, if you will, or who, ha- who comes from the same sort of cultural uh, background that, um, that you come from. You know, we, we hear this about gender, and it happens with race as well. So in a meeting, a woman says something, and everyone's, okay, and then five minutes later, a man says something, and all of a sudden, oh, this is the greatest idea that ever, you know, that ever, ever came up. Yeah. And so what we have to do in those situations is we have to have allies and others in the, who are aware who can say, oh, gee, you know, thanks for confirming Wanda's idea that she just said, you know, five minutes ago. Glad, glad we all think that that's a great idea. So we've got to be attuned to notice those subtle kinds of things that, um, that relational power and influence, um, you know, at, uh, at, uh, impact in an organization. Yeah. Well, and towards that end, one of my pet peeves watching this work go through is a young person who is like me, regardless whatever it is that I that I constitute, I'm going to see myself in that person. I'm going to mentor them, have a lot of faith in them, and I get a little bit blind to, I can, if I'm not really, really careful, to their dark sides or flaws or development needs. Pick whatever word suits you. And when it comes time to advocate, I'm going to be more strongly confident of that person who's like me. Whereas I take the person who's different from me and I'm more hesitant. I'm more likely to say, I'm not sure yet. I need more time to be convinced. Mm -hmm. And one Mm -hmm. of the things I'd say is if you find yourself saying those kind of things, then that's a good pause to stop. Okay, so let's go back to our main thrust here, Mary Frances. And I want to talk about how do we have these conversations about race you know, where do we start if we want to understand the experiences of our black colleagues at work? Help. Where do you begin? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we start with humility. I think we start um, by putting the uh, elephant, um, you know, in the room, if you will. Um, and so if you're uncomfortable, just say that. Say, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. Um, perhaps I should have known, you know, known more. Perhaps I should have been attuned to this, you know, sooner. Um, but, but, but I wasn't. And I really want to sit down now and just have a conversation. And also um, honor that that black person may say, you know what, I, I am really emotionally drained. I'm emotionally drained from having to share and having to share my experiences. Here are some resources that I can give you <laughs> because right now I'm not in a, in a position to have that conversation. So the first thing is should not be an expectation that black people will be your teacher. Um, it should be uh, an invitation. Okay. So if that's what you're looking for in the conversation. So that's, that's one thing, that's, that's one, one tip, because everybody's not the same, and some black people may, may um, welcome, you know, having the conversation. But what I hear a lot of in the research that I do is that we're tired, we're exhausted, that's why I wrote Black Fatigue. Yes. And, um, you know, we, we just, it's triggering, it can be triggering to continue to, yeah. to talk about um, some of the, you know, the racism that goes on. And so that, that might be, you know, that might be first. Okay, so let's say now we're not in that kind of a situation. We're in a situation where we, um, you know, absolutely are uh, both parties, you know, want to have the, the conversation. And then I would say, as I said, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, to start with humility, to start with, you know, recognizing that we don't know what we don't know. Um, resist the white savior 
you know, complex. Um, oh, the down, poor downtrodden black people, I'm going to come in and save them? No, that's not the kind of conversation. We're looking for an equitable conversation. And oftentimes the power dynamic that you spoke of, we just spoke of, is, is there. And so if it's a situation where you're the boss or the white boss and someone else is a, a subordinate, what you want to do is you want to try to create an equitable conversation. And I talk about that in uh, the book Inclusive Conversations. And an equitable conversation would start something like this. So I know that I have position. I'm the boss now. So I know that I have positional power, um, and I know that I can, you know, make decisions that impact your future here. However, in this conversation, I want to create equity the best way that we can, and I want your voice to be just as important as my voice. So that would be the start of a, a conversation. And during this conversation, a leader might say, if um, – you think that there's a uh, that there's inequity. I want you to I want you to tell me, and I'm going to genuinely listen and hear that, and not be defensive. And we can and we can talk about it. But it is my hope and my desire to create and to have a conversation based on equity. Okay, that sounds pretty good to me. I'd be up for that conversation, I, regardless <laughs> what the topic is. That sounds like a great way right. to do any challenging conversation. All right. To right. acknowledge the positional power and mm -hmm. acknowledge that I can impact your future and to say, I want to create equity in this conversation. I want your voice to be as important as my voice. And you can call me on it if you think it isn't happening. All right. I love it. So one is some humility about what I don't know. I know awareness that I should have known. Maybe I don't know whatever it is. I don't. And an invitation. Would you be willing to talk about it? with an understanding that the answer may be no for really good reasons. And mm -hmm. then a way to start a conversation where I'm not being the savior and I'm trying to create an equitable conversation. Okay, then right. what? So then what? Because in the conversation, you might get to a point. And so what, what you're really trying to do in this initial conversation, first you're trying to get to some kind of a common ground, right, where <clears> – <throat> We can agree that these are this this is where we are, right? Um, we're perhaps going to agree that um, that racism does exist. Okay, let's 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 agree with that. We can perhaps agree um, that um, that there's a lack of black people in leadership roles. I mean, I, I don't know what the facts might be, but but we're going to you know start with this basis of of, com of common agreement because sometimes we find that. Um, you know, the, the leaders will say, well, well, gee, we've got, you know, we, we've got, we got one black person there. So, you know, is that enough? You know, <laughs> because yeah, they're right. not recognizing, you know, that the other person is seeing this as an inequity, right? So you have right. to, you have to be able to reach some common basis of fact before you go deep into delving into what you, what the different perspectives are. So in the book, we can't talk about that at work. I say, you know, first the self and other understanding. Got to understand myself first. Then I've got to, I've got to have some deep understanding of, of cultural differences, lived experiences that, you know, that have been different than mine. I need to really deeply understand. I talked to a CEO one time and he said, you know, he said, I, I really didn't understand um, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. And he said, I just didn't understand why somebody just wouldn't be up for, let's just say, all lives matter. You know, why do we have to say black lives matter? And so he said it wasn't until he sat down and talked with several of his, uh, of the black employees at the, at the company um, who really helped him to understand their lived experience and the, the lived experience, experiences of their children, why black people might not see 
uh, law enforcement as in a positive light and as their friends. Because he said, look, if my son got stopped by the police, I'd say good, good, because he's probably doing something he didn't need to be do, doing so good. The police are going to straighten him out and send him home, right? And he learned, you know, by having these conversations, that that wasn't the expectation for, for black people if their child, son, daughter got stopped by the police. The expectation would be they might not come home. So having that other understanding before you sit down to try to have the conversation, because we don't want the conversation to be a debate. We want it to be a dialogue. We live in a debate society. Uh, And in a debate, somebody wins and somebody loses. In a dialogue, you keep that dialogue going. It's not about winning and losing. It's about understanding. It's about perhaps shifting perspectives, right? It's about... um, it's about that there might be more than one right. And in a dialogue, you might have to pause. You might, have to, you might get to an impasse. So this is, like, this is developing a skill to have a dialogue. So you're learning how to play the piano. And there's going to come a time when you're, you're, you're going to be practicing this piece, but you just can't get it. You just can't get it. So you need to walk away from it. Same thing in a conversation. You, you, you're hitting an impasse. Like, um, I'm not sure that we're going down a path that I, you know, understand or that I agree with. Let's stop and let's go and let's pause. Let's go and reflect and learn some more before we come back and finish this conversation. We live in a society where we like things all buttoned up, tight, tight, tight. Had the conversation, got that, got that done, right? Did that. Um, this is ongoing. You know, learning about um, race and learning about it's, it's, it's an ongoing journey. There's not an end point. And so I think we need to enter those, those conversations expecting non-closure. Right? We, we've got a lot to think about and to ponder. And I think the reason that mindsets don't get shift, shifted is we don't allow for that time to process. You know, how many, I've changed my mind a lot of time on things that I believe. Once I've had a time, time to really examine my own beliefs and, you know, where, where did that even come from, and then do some research and, and understanding, and then be able to, to be able to shift. So as an example in my book, Inclusive Conversation, I talked about, you know, sort of unconditional, you know, forgiveness. That's how I first start, started that, that chapter, that we just need to forgive because it's more for the, uh, it's more for us, um, you know, who, who've been hurt than it is for the other person because, you know, we're, we're harboring that and whatnot. And then, you know, some of the folks on my team read the chapter and they said, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that we should just, you know, forgive without accountability. And I'm like, hmm. Well, you never heard about that one. I just like you just need to forgive, move on. And so then I started reading, um, you know, some books about forgiveness and some spiritual, you know, um, books and some of you know theological perspective and whatnot. And I was able to shift my perspective. And I said, okay, I understand that now. You know, that forgiveness um, has to come with some accountability on the person who's done the, who who did the thing. You know, to to need to have forgiveness in the first place, they have to acknowledge. They have to acknowledge the hurt that they've caused, even if they didn't intend it. And so that was a shift for me because I processed it, I reflected on it, and I went out and learned some more about what forgiveness, you know, mm-hmm. from a de- what forgiveness is from a deeper perspective. Right. That makes a lot of sense, Mary Frances. Um, and I like your phrase, your analogy that this is a dialogue. This is about an understanding that probably isn't going to happen in one conversation and it probably isn't going to happen in a smooth, easy journey, but that it's an ongoing, steady journey that we keep doing and keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. And each time we get better at it, 
um, and that there's not an endpoint. I think you're right. We'd like to tie things up in a nice, neat bow, particularly if you're a leader of a large organization. It's really quickly down to the tell me what you want me to do. Um, and right, it's difficult exactly. to say what I want you to do is to understand the world from a different set of eyes. That is easily said and very that's a whole other set of commitment of time. Right. Okay. It is. It, it's a lot of time, and, there's a, and, and a lot of people don't want to put the time to it. Right. And, you know, this action idea, um, I'm, I'm finding that with the sessions that I'm doing for a lot of clients right now. We're doing these virtual sessions, and we're um, providing an historical context and historical overview on the impact of racism. And then we're providing, you know, the, and here's how you have the conversation. And, and they're coming back to me and saying, um, well, you know, you're spending too much time on that history stuff and the impact stuff. We just want to know what to do. Just, just get, just hurt. We need you to get to the action faster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, part of it is the understanding. I mean, yeah. Okay. Mary Frances, <laughs> this is a perfect place to take a pause. So my guest today okay. is Mary Frances Winters. She's part the founder and CEO of the Winters Group. You can learn more about them at the Winters Group or excuse me, wintersgroup.com. The book we're talking about today is We Can Talk About That at Work, and her two latest books you just heard reference to, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, and the second one, Inclusive Conversations Fostering Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Differences. We'll be right back, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how to create this thing called an inclusive culture. We'll be back. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back. With me today is Mary Frances Winters from the Winters Group. You can find more about her at wintersgroup.com. The book we're talking about is We Can't Talk About That at Work, as well as her two newest books, Black Fatigue and Inclusive Conversations. Now, we've just been talking about the fact that it's um, the conversation is a journey. It's a dialogue. It's not just something you say, tell me what to do. It's a part of understanding the lived experience, the perspective. And whether you love history or not, I think there's a piece of understanding the historical context that carries so much weight and so much impact for so many people in this conversation. But okay, Mary Frances, you know, suppose I don't actually know very much about what has happened, about the history, about people's experiences, about how people feel. Is there a place to start other than turning to my black colleagues and say, okay, educate me now, it's your turn? <laughs> yes, I think that, um, you know, there are all sorts of podcasts and documentaries. You know, 13th is a great documentary. You can all you can go all the way back to Roots if you want to. Um, so there's, there are just lots of resources out there. Read my books, right? But there are lots of other um, books out there um, as well. And if you just go um, online right now and look at, at um, resources uh, to understand race and racism, there there's just lots of really great, you know, great resources um, to do that. So I think do you have starting, a favorite? Um, granted, your favorite? books are highly recommended, but do you have any other specific favorites that you think are a good starting point? Um, I think, you, in, you mean in terms of a book or in terms of just any kind of resource? Um, pick your a favorite, whatever it is. Um, I think the I think thirteenth would be my. It's about the thirteenth amendment of the United States. I think that would be probably um, probably my favorite. Um, okay. To to go to um, first, I think um, the other. There's a book. Oh, another book. White Rage. Do you remember that I talked about um, the need to um, the need to talk to be able to discuss and talk about um, whiteness. Yeah. And I think that white rage is a good resource for that. Okay. Okay. All right. Excellent. And needless to say, your your books as well. All right. So and now I'm going to come to a really delicate question. How do I know if I don't know enough? I'm like, is there a checklist? <laughs> I know that sounds a little arcane, but when do I know I know enough? Is there a way to become more aware of how much I don't know? And I think I think that the big answer to the question is we never know enough. We're always learning, right? So we never know enough. Um, but I think the specific answer to the question is there's a tool called the Intercultural Development Inventory, and it is a psychometric tool which um, measures your level of cultural competence. It measures how you experience different, how you experience different cultures. And it says that it's developmental. And it says, the more that I know about different cultures, the more capacity I have, the more capability I have to effectively bridge across those differences and work effectively across differences. So the first stage on the continuum is denial. And denial says, I don't know anything about difference. I don't really want to know anything about difference. You know, I might notice food or something like that, but, you know, I'm just not really interested. That's denial. Only about 2% of the people who take this tool fall there. Now, I've done developmental, remember, so now I do, I've learned something about difference, but uh, somehow I'm thrown into 
this um, experience. Perhaps I go to uh, another culture, another country, and I have culture shock. And so that is, is where polarization happens, where it's an us and them, because you, are, you see the world only from your own cultural frame, and you are likely to judge the other as not as good as yours, right? I'm shocked. Oh, look at those, you know, barbaric people. Why do they, you know, why do they do it that way? Um, I was, um, uh, I had a house in the Virgin Islands at one time, and there was something in the, in the newspaper in an op-ed where an American, you know, tourist, the U.S. US Virgin Islands is part of a, the U.S., but somebody from the mainland um, was, has been visiting, and they wrote um, in this op-ed that um, they should drive on the right side of the road because, um, you know, um, the Virgin Islands has the British influence, so they right. drive on, you know, the opposite side. So that, that's, you know, it's like, you should do it our way. <laughs> you know, you know yeah, right. it was very inconvenient for me, you know, to have to drive in St. Thomas. You know, you after all, you are a U.S. territory, so you need to drive on the right side of the road. So that's polarization, right? us and them, and you need to do it our way, right? The next stage on the, on the continuum is called minimization. And minimization is actually where most people who take this tool fall. Minimization is where you're colorblind. I don't see color. I just treat everybody the same. And literally 68% of the people who take the tool fall at minimization. The next stage is where you are now culturally competent because you recognize that there are differences that do make a difference and everybody isn't the same and people have different experiences and different outcomes, and that's called acceptance. It's not agreement, but it's acceptance that you accept that there are a variety of ways in which people experience the culture, and um, even though all lives do matter, black lives have mattered differently, and so at, at acceptance you get that, and you can hold that in your, in your mindset that, yes, all lives matter, but we have to pay particular attention to how black lives have not, you know, have not mattered. And so that's acceptance. You, you're, you're, you're curious at acceptance. You have a deeper understanding of differences, and you want to know more. The last stage, and only about 13% of the people take the tool or at acceptance. The last stage on the continuum is, is adaptation. And at adaptation, not only do you recognize these differences, you know what to do about them. You know how to effectively work. So a leader would know how to effectively engage his diverse, his or her, I say his, because a lot of leaders are men, his or her uh, or their diverse team. They would know how to, they would know how to do that. Only 2% of the people who take the tool know that. So this tool gives you a readout, and the readout tells you where you think you are along the continuum. And most people think that they're at these last two stages, acceptance or adaptation, but most people fall at minimization. So they have a gap. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's about closing that gap where the learning is. And so that's how you know that's one way. So that's one measure. And there are other tools out there, too, but I just happen to like this one. Give that one as an example. That's one way that you know that you don't know enough, right? Because if you're at minimization, then you don't know enough. You, you, you need to really continue to work at it. And even if you're at adaptation, you want to keep learning because things change. I mean, um, what we're focused on, you know, um, changes. So you, you would want to be able to, you know, continue learning. Right. Is that helpful? Right. Is that? Yeah. As you were going through this, it strikes me that when I think about going to a completely different culture, a different country, a different language, a different set of behaviors, you know, we do an awful lot more homework to understand what happens there, what are the rules, what can I get away with, or what can I do, what's not permitted there. I mean, we ask more questions. We might even learn something about the language. But when it comes to a cultural difference that's within our own world, like within our city or within our nation, we don't do that homework to understand that cultural difference, I, at least not from the white perspective. Maybe I should say that's fair. 
so interesting. That's fair. That's fair. And I, the reason is because at minimization, where most people, you know, fall, they would mm-hmm. say, well, we're all the same. We're all the same. You know, be, be, because we're all Americans. And you've heard right. that. You've heard that. You know, why do you have to say African-American? Why can't you just say American? I don't say Italian-American. Somebody would say to me, I don't say Irish-American. I'm just an American. Okay. And so that's where the, that's the minimization. Yeah. Okay. All right. So while you say that one, can you help me with one that I struggle with all the time? If I go to the UK, we're going to say B-A-M-E to represent Black African Middle East. If I come to the U.S., we used to say black. Now we say African-American, and I think we're migrating back to black. Correct. Help me mig- is that the right – do black. we say black now? Is that the right place to be, or are we still doing yeah. African-American? Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think some people might still be doing African-American. However, um, the reason for black is that everybody in the United States is not African-American. Everybody mm-hmm. is, somebody may be first generation from the continent of Africa. They might be from the Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean. And mm-hmm. so saying black um, is more encompassing. Okay, great. All right, good. That's helpful. And I like that a lot of people are saying people of color so that we also don't forget that we have other people with different colored skins like Native Americans or Asians or Latinos or a whole host of other people. Okay, so let's move on. But the, there's, um, there's a new term, uh, Wanda, let me just say that there is a new yep. term, of um, BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. You might be black, you might be from the indigenous community, or you might identify as a person of color. So bipod. Bipod. I had seen that one, bipod. Okay? Mm-hmm. I remember uh-huh. that one. It had, it had not entered my vocabulary. I had seen it written, but I hadn't really talked about it. Okay, so let's shift for a minute to talk about not how do I have a conversation about work, but how do I create this thing called the inclusive culture around me? And let me put a point on why I think this is important. You said it earlier. You were talking about the fact that we have diverse teams and we know that diverse perspectives are going to give us better insights and better innovations. And frequently the really good idea is going to come from the ninth person on the team who doesn't want to speak up because they don't want to stick out anymore. So, you know, that we bring in that diversity for a great reason, and then we turn around to silence it. So this notion of creating an inclusive culture where people feel that they belong, they can speak up, and they can offer their ideas, even those ideas are contrary to the consensus of the moment. That's where the breakthrough happens. Now the question is, what do we do to create that inclusive culture? <laughs> You're leaving the hardest question for the towards the end, right? Yes. I mean, it is it is so difficult. One, it is just so difficult because, as you said earlier, um, there are deadlines to meet. Um, there are um, other uh, forces that may be at play that I've got to please. You know, so I, I have a boss, but my boss is a boss, and so maybe my boss is trying to please his boss or her boss, right? And so. Um, even though I may want to be an inclusive leader, there may be other forces that are just not in my in my control. So I think it has to come from the top of the of the organization, where the the CEO is so darn committed to this that he lives, eats, and he I say he because it's always us, us, I didn't say he, she, they live, eat, or breathe it. Um, say it all the time in in their communications, 
Um, and there are behaviors that are very specific that are expected. And so one of those behaviors that would be expected in a team would be that we don't want consensus. What we want, in, you know, not, not initially anyway, not what we're looking for. We are looking for the most different idea, you know, the most outlandish idea. That's what we're looking for, right? And that the leader would, um, you know, call people out if they, you know, oh, that's, you know that, that's, that's not outlandish enough. You know, keep going. We want something more outlandish. That's creating that environment where people who have different perspectives would feel that their ideas are going to be heard. Now, the, the idea may not be enacted, it may not be implemented, but it's creating that, um, it's creating that and disrupting this idea. Now, is it going to take longer? Yes, it takes longer. It does. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's something that I think we have to take into consideration. However, in the end, the, the outcome is going to be better. And so in the U.S. culture, um, we will always, uh, we have always gone for uh, sort of the, the short-term solution versus the longer-term solution. You know, Eastern cult- many Eastern cultures are more long-term focused. We're very short-term focused. Mm-hmm. We don't have time for that. We just need to get, we just need to get something done. Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard. Okay. I mean, creating that inclusive culture is, is, is really hard. Some other things that we recommend is, you know, um, check-ins for team meetings. So don't just, you know, we, we tend to be more task-driven than relationship-driven in the way that we um, operate in, in business. Get to the task. Get to the relationship later. Many cultures are more relationship-driven at first. I've got to get to know you. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I you know, before I can do business with you, you know, I need to know about your family. I need to know where you're from. I need to, you know, I need mm-hmm. to get to know you. So I think if we were a little bit more relationship-driven um, than task-driven, we probably would be better at creating inclusive cultures. Yeah. Yeah, because to understand your perspective, to understand where you're coming from, to create a space of psychological safety, I have to get to know you as a human being all of you as a human being, and that's relationship oriented as opposed to what are you doing for me today? And I think that's, it's one of my universal themes. I don't care what it is that you're trying to do. You're going to get better results if you can do that sort of human oriented approach. Okay. And that's why oftentimes women, (laughs) women are better leaders because women have been socialized to be more relational. Unless they get socialized on the way up to top, not to be relational. So I see some of that too. Oh, they, yes, exactly. They get re-socialized, right? <laughs> Reprogrammed, right? Or, yes. you know, yes. some of them are just very task-oriented to begin with. I think that's just a general mm-hmm. statement of human differences. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to ask a really unusual question. We're going to step away from this whole notion of work. And one of my favorite things uh, about talking about race at work, one of my favorite things to ask people is, tell me about a time when you had to get out of your comfort zone. And what do you think was really the key to your success? Oh, my. Which time did I have to get out of my comfort zone? Um, I um, Hello? Am I okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Yeah, I had to. Um, I had to get out of my comfort zone um, in the '80s. This is one time, many times, but in the '80s, I was selected to go to an executive development program for my MBA. And at that time, the company that I was with picked four people a year to go. So there were three white men and me. 
who were selected to go to this uh, executive, you know, Friday program where you get your MBA in, you know, in two years. Mm-hmm. And so that was really out of my comfort zone to be in this cohort, you know, of three white men and me. And I was young at that time, so I hadn't, didn't have a lot of, you know, um, you know, business experience. And I think what, um, and I didn't succeed at first. I mean, we, you know, they wanted to go play golf. I don't do golf. They wanted to go for a beer afterwards. I don't do beer, you know. And so it was just, just like we were not, you know, forming this bond for those four of us who were a part of this, for a part of this, this study group. And so I think that I think the breakthrough came when. Um, we were able to, again, get to know each other more personally. We had something to talk about. And so um, Norm had, you know, two kids. I had two kids. And so we were able to talk about that. And then, and then we, we, you know, we got to a point where they were saying, well, Mary Frances, what would you like to do, you know, in terms of the um, socialization? If we wanted to go outside, well, I'd rather go to a wine bar than a, you know, than a pub, you know, for beer. I'd rather go for wine. And so it was that kind of thing to, you know, to sort of break down the barriers. But initially, it was three white men and me. And so they're, they have the, they're in the majority. And so what they wanted to do reigned. And I was just really, really, really out of my, out of my comfort zone. So did you initiate those changes of can we do something different? Or was it one of them that reached out to you to say, hey, what else could we do that's going to work for you? It was, it was, one, of, it was one of them. It was one of them that finally, you know, it took a while, it took you know, half a semester or, or maybe even the first semester, I don't know, but it took a while. And then because they realized that they were leaving me out, you know, and I guess I could have conformed, you know, I could have said, well, you know, I, I don't drink beer, but um, not that I don't drink alcohol, I just don't drink beer. So I guess I could have gone, you know, with them and had something else, um, but I just, I just didn't feel comfortable. So I guess, it's, you know, there is a give and take, there is a mutual adaptation. So, you know, I think that... Um, as a black woman, I have to adapt. But I think what we're what we're saying is, is that more of the adapting comes from uh, the black people. More of the adjusting, more of the changing, the code shifting, if you will, the code switching comes from us. And so we want that to be more, you know, more more mutual. Right. Right. So I think the whole point of what we're trying to say is to get to a place where you actually notice that your black colleagues are not as integrated, included a part of um, there in the social moments and do something constructive about that, not just let Correct. it pass or let the burden sit on the one person who's the outlier. We've been saying this in terms of black, but I would say it's true for absolutely any difference, regardless how you define that difference. And then it's down to you as a person to reach out, to notice, to reach out, to recognize it might not be going the way you wanted it to go and ask, have a conversation. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Mary Frances, delightful conversation. Sadly, we are out of time. I feel like we could go on for this one for never several more hours. Again, my guest today is Mary Frances Winters at wintersgroup.com. The book we've been talking about is We Can't Talk About That at Work and our two newest books, Black Fatigue and Inclusive Conversations. Mary Frances, thank you for taking the time to work us through the issues. And join us next week. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mary Frances. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel.
Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 